This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 5th, 2015, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning on this awesome sunny day. If you have your Bibles, you could open up to the very center of it. You'll find the book of Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalm 136. We are typically going through books of the Bible. I'm inserting one uh, standalone sermon here. Uh, on Psalm 136, and we'll return to Genesis for the rest of the summer. We'll begin in verse 1 and read the whole thing. Psalm 136, here's what God's Word says. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule the night, for steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. Forever, and gave their land as a heritage, for steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel his servant, for steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for steadfast love endures forever. This is God's Word, and the theme should be rather obvious. In order in my OCD world to make the sermon schedule work for the summer, I inserted this one psalm. The word psalm, if you're not familiar with it, means melody, and really it's a um, collection of lyrics sung to music, that, the book of Psalms. It's the largest book in the Bible and arguably the greatest collection of hymns and prayers and poetry known to man. Now, there are over 150 Psalms. If you read one, well, five a day, you'll get through the book of Psalms every day, uh, every month, I'm sorry, once a month. If you get to Psalm 119, that's a little bit long, but more than half of these songs were written by King David, and it'll actually indicate the author typically right next to the number. 
Some of them were written by other men like Moses, Solomon. Some were written by entire families. Uh, And then there are many that the author is unknown. And generally speaking, in this book of songs, there are songs of praise, there are songs of of lament and weeping. There are songs where, where they're crying out and seemingly a depression. And then there's songs of great joy. There are songs that call for judgment on enemies. And there are songs that are to be sung at special occasions in worship and celebration. And there are even what they call royal songs or psalms that memorialize the great monarchy of Israel. And all of these psalms are, are chocked full of truth. They're all deeply emotional, even surprisingly or shockingly so at times. And all of them teach us about God. And they show us how to relate to Him at different times and seasons of our lives. Now, this psalm, Psalm 136, is recognized as a praise psalm. It's praising God, declaring things about God, and it, and it focuses largely on Israel's history from creation through deliverance from Egypt and into the promised land. And as I read it, you probably you know, recognize the cadence or the rhythm or the repetition of the song, which historically made it very memorable because it was simple and easy to remember. By Jews, this particular psalm is known as the Great Thanksgiving. And what it does, if you recognize or read it simply, it declares we are to thank God, but it does so in saying, let us look back, Jews, calls them back to what God has already done in order to look forward to what God is going to do through His Messiah. Now, This uh, 26-verse song is very structured, like a poem would be. It begins with three praises to God and attributes three different names to God, describing Him as good and powerful and sovereign. And then the song continues and gives six praises to God as Creator and six praises to God as Deliverer and then seven praises to God as protector and provider. And finally, which a lot of the Psalms do, it ends with kind of a summary with four or so verses of of everything that the psalmist was trying to say and calls us again to thank him. Thank God. But the heart of the song is pretty obvious. In 26 verses, there's a phrase repeated 26 times, and that being... That the steadfast love of God endures forever. Now, I'm not a big fan of standalone sermons. And what I mean by that, it's just easier to go through books of the Bible because you've got to preach what's there. And, you know, if it's difficult, if it's, um, if it's rich, it doesn't matter, it's just, you preach it. Uh, with standalone sermons, I struggle sometimes to figure out what to preach. And so this time I asked my, my family, like, hey, I gotta do a standalone sermon. What do you think the church needs to hear? And so one of my sons was sitting there and I said, What do you think? What should I preach on? And without hesitation, he said, Well, I think you need to preach on God's love. Because you talk so much about God's holiness and his wrath and his justice. I think God's love is what the church needs to hear. I'm like, oh, okay. Really? You know, it's like so I'm I'm 
I began to argue, and I'm not going to argue this. I'm not going to prove anything. Fair enough. And so I determined to find the psalm that talked about God's love more than any other. And here we are in Psalm 136. It repeats it 26 times. And I think it's important to, to preach on God's love for a number of reasons, but in our world today, there's a lot of confusion about just even what that means. What is, it, what is God's love? And many people have come to understand that oh, God is just, His love means He's just a personal being, and, and, or He's a really affectionate being, and so like, he's, His love is very emotional. And others, it's like, no, God's love, we talk about God's love and God loving, it means He's affirming and, and tolerant of, of all things. It seems that a lot of definitions that come out are largely based on defining love according to man's experience or man's desire. And if you read Psalm 136 and you you dig into it, which I have this week and it's been such a joy, but what you come out is understanding that God's love is actually so worthy of praise because it is so incomprehensible and different than man. It is completely different. We do not experience it between one another because it is unique to God. His love is eternally infinite and radically different. Now, the Hebrew word here, translated steadfast love, is hesed. And if you saw that the title, if you will, on 136, that his steadfast love endures forever is probably written in there. It would be God's hesed endures forever. And this word is, is one of 13 attributes that the Jews, the rabbis, the sages, that, that they derive from God's self-revelation of His own name to Moses back in Exodus. In Exodus 34, there's this moment where, where Moses is saying, just, just tell me, reveal yourself to me. And this is in a powerful verse where God passes before Moses says, I'm going to declare my name to you. I'm going to describe myself. In Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, he says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is the Lord speaking about himself. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Twice, abounding in that steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now there really is no actual precise English equivalent for chesed. You see here, as I'm preaching from the ESV, they translate the word steadfast love. But if you have the King James, it would translate it as mercy. God's mercy endures forever. The NIV probably has love. The NASB has what is probably the original English word, loving kindness. Now, loving kindness was a biblical word that didn't exist until Miles Coverdale invented it. He was uh, a translator, basically, that was responsible for the first complete English translation of the Bible, both New and Old Testaments. 
And that was about 1535, I believe. And Coverdale used this word only in cases where there was a recognized relationship between two parties, particularly God and His covenant people. The word was never used to just describe kindness in general. He was careful to only use loving kindness when it referred to God's love towards a people that He had covenanted with. In other cases, even when speaking about God's love, he would use words like goodness, mercy, or great kindness to describe God's attitude toward men. He would only use the word kindness when he described man's attitude toward men, even if they were being commanded to be kind. One Scottish theologian named Sir George Adam Smith, he suggested a different word, a word called leal love. Sounds weird. Word that he invented, but he wanted to combine the concept of loyalty and love. Leal love, okay. But it unfortunately did not convey the equally important idea of what we have here in the ESV of steadfastness, of active persistence, of God's relentless love toward his people. When we talk about God's loving kindness or God's steadfast love, we mean that sure love that will not let Israel go. Despite their perpetual tendency to rebel. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see Israel is an unlovable people. God directly tells them, I'm not, I'm not loving you because you're lovable, you're great, you're awesome. I'm loving you because I've chosen to love you. And so as they perpetually rebel and complain and wander away from Him, God refuses to give up on the people that He has chosen. In view of what Israel actually deserves, we see that steadfast love has additional meanings of mercy and forgiveness. So you have this category of love where you're acting deep, rich, Kindness and grace, relentless pursuit and mercy and forgiveness, and you get a very huge and big picture of God's love. To say God's love or to say God has loving kindness towards us or loves us is to declare that He is faithfully committed, bountifully gracious, radically merciful, deeply compassionate, absolutely forgiving and relentlessly leading and providing for us forever. Very different definition of love than we might find in the world. Now the psalm is called the great thanksgiving by the Jews, as I said. And you see that the song is bookended by calls to give thanks, and then at the end to give thanks. And it could be added to almost every phrase in this. So he says, to him alone, like, give thanks, to him alone does this. Give thanks to the one who does this. Give thanks, it's implied. And so it's saying, give thanks to the God who is or who did this. And then this phrase, for a steadfast love endures forever. Giving us the, the motivation for something, for God and, and really for us. Essentially, the emphasis is not on thanking God simply for what has happened. 
but it's in acknowledging what has happened and then trusting Him for what is going to happen because He loves. Looking back and saying, look how He has loved us. And so trust that He will love us. We are called to trust that God is intrinsically motivated by His love. He is acting toward an undeserving people and He will never cease to act the same way in the future. It's not merely, well, God's blessed and God's saved and God provided. It's that God will bless. God will save. God will provide. And he offers three kind of proofs of where this happened so that we can look at that and and study it and remember it and then move forward knowing it. In verses 4-9, through you'll see he speaks about God's love in creation. We have phrases like, He who does great wonders. He who made the heavens. He who spread out the earth. He who made the great lights. All these things speaking about creation. We see that in love, God gives us all things. And there are only two things in existence, right? There's the Creator and everything else, which is called creation. And all that exists, things invisible, things visible, are given by God, created by God. All that we have is from Him. And all that we have was made out of nothing And he was never obligated to make anything. And you begin to think about the things that he created, that he has blessed us with, that he has given us. What began with first God created wisdom, and then he created light. I particularly like light. And he gave us the sun, right? And you go, man, I don't know if I ever stopped and thanked God for the sun. Today, I'll be thanking God for the sun. We think of all the things that the sun itself provides our earth. But he created the moon. And he created the stars. And he gave us life. And he gave us breath. He gave us our minds. And he gave us our bodies. And he gave us our strengths. And he gave us our personalities. And he gave us our preferences. And he even gave us opportunities. In love, all that we have is from God. And the awesome part of it is that he made it all awesome. Like, you think about what he could have done with, say, food. He could have made food like this disc. Every day, take this disc. You have the nutrients you need. But he made ribeye steak, and he made ice cream, and he made coffee. Right? He made these wonderful things for us to enjoy. He didn't have to make beautiful mountains. He could have made it all great. Well, we live in Seattle. It's great a lot. But today, we see it's beautiful. He gave us all these things what we needed, but even more than that, what we could enjoy. And He created for the purpose of demonstrating His loving kindness and steadfastness. Isn't the examples that Christ used when talking about what God does for us? He says, look at the birds, how they're fed. Look how the flowers, how beautiful they are. Look how God has loved you. Look how He has loved through creation. How much more would He love you? 
God created this beautiful world and He preserves and blesses this world and He's committed to restoring this world to the beauty that He wanted it in the beginning. The gift of creation is enough to thank Him for. It is a testament to His goodness and His power and His creativity and His love. We see that steadfast love, right? We say God's love is steadfast and that He makes sure He gives us everything that we need and everything that He has given us is good. And so we thank Him. Why? Because we are blessed with what we have. Stuff we didn't earn. And I know we think, well, I've gotten this job for myself. I've built this family. I, the mind that you have, the hands that you have, the money that you have, the opportunities that you have, all of that was a gift from the Lord. So we thank Him for what He's given us. Right there. We could spend a lifetime thinking about that. But He's done more. In verses 10-15, through 15, the second category of proof of what His loving kindness looked like, He recounts the love of God in redemption. Right In creation, God blessed all people whether they believe or not. The sun warms and grows and blesses everyone whether they want to or not. Whether they recognize God or not. But in redemption, He chose to love a particular people. As He speaks to Israel, this is a song for Israel, God brought His people out of Egypt. He brought them and delivered them from an invincible enemy in the cruelest of conditions. In a world where they were enslaved and beaten and their children were thrown into the river. The Exodus is the story of God's deliverance of His people from that slavery. And His redemption was personal, right? God came in Himself and He confronted evil. God overthrew the prince of the known world. God brought the kingdom of darkness to its knees and ironically used creation to do it. With a strong hand, God saved His people so that nothing, nothing would separate Him from loving His people and from His people loving Him. He did what was the impossible, that His people might be freed from their slavery. And yet, these same people, moments after they're saved, days, maybe weeks, are complaining Wishing they were back in Egypt. Oh, remember how wonderful it was when we were getting beaten and eating well? Despite that, God says, I will not let you go. He walked into Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and at the same time declared, I will never let you go. God's steadfast love says, I will never abandon those I have chosen, even if you try and abandon me. And so we are thankful not just for what He's given, what He has saved us from, what He has freed us from. We could sit and thank God for all the things that He has saved us from, many of which we have no clue about. But then the last category, right? 16 to 22. It talks about what happened after they were brought out. About love, the love of God and providing for them and leading them. He didn't just bring them out of a dark place. He brought them into a promised and beautiful and rich land. He delivered them from something and He led them to something. He saved them from death 
and he brought them and gave them new life and new identity and new hope. If that's not a picture of the gospel, I don't know what is. He doesn't just deliver them and say, all right, done, good luck, guys. He leads them. God's love didn't end at deliverance. He led his people. He protected his people. He provided for his people, as the great Matthew Henry said. He led them and he fed them. He led them and he fed them. His love was not just a momentary action, but a long, lifelong commitment to continual relationship. God loved Israel beyond the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and even into the battlefield. It was not enough to deliver them and send them off. He delivered them and walked with them and cared for them and led them. God's love is stead. Fast. He makes sure that those who were lost never, ever, ever, ever get lost again. And He brings to completion what He began at salvation. So we are thankful for what He has given us. And we are thankful for what He has saved us from. And we are thankful for where He is leading us to and how He is doing that. This psalm is about God's great love toward us, radical love toward us, God's love in that He remembers us, but more than just remembering us, He rescues us, but more than just rescues us, He loves us and continues to fight for us. And so we thank Him for the love that blesses, and we thank Him for the love that delivers, and we thank Him for the love that promises to bring us home. What this psalm shows us is that God, though we're not worthy of a thought, God is thinking about us a lot. As Charles Spurgeon said, God's thoughts of you are many, so let not yours be few in return. God's thoughts of you are many. So let not yours be few in return. See, Psalm 136 is not a psalm we just open up, we read, we go, oh, God really loves us, and close it up. This psalm was designed to be sung in worship. It was designed to be sung out by God's people. It was sung or designed to be proclaimed to others. Whether you are singing it in the shower all by yourself, great. Or you're singing that outside with people to hear, great. Or you're singing it together. It was designed to be proclaimed and repeated and memorized all the time. Now, the author of this psalm is, is unknown, doesn't list it. People have tried to guess. But we know that the chorus of this song was sung at different times in the history of God's people. Now, as a little bit of a side, this is going to get weird for a second. And you're like, okay, here we go. He's weird. I've always had a weird desire. I've always wanted to have a group of minstrels follow me around with certain instruments and play dramatic music that works with whatever happens to be going on in the moment, right? So I'm disciplining my kids and like, right? It's like, you stop, it would be just rad, right? Or if I'm, I'm really joyful, like I'm just like, that's a good day. You know, just like happy, like thank you. It'd be awesome, right? It'd be really awesome. And, and all that to say that 
It's, it's that background music that you have around you that you're listening to that, that, that moves you and shapes you, right? When I was teaching film in high school, I used to, to talk about the impact of the background music that you're not noticing. So I'd show a movie like Gladiator, right? Battle scenes, really violent. I'd turn the soundtrack off and I'd play classical music. They'd be like, <laughs> you know, you don't see, it's like stabbing and heads flying off and they're just like, oh, it's just wonderful, right? And you began to, to just perceive and feel different. Your emotion was affected. You're not even trying. Like, this is weird, right? All that to say that the background music, figuratively speaking, but even literally, of our lives impacts how we feel, impacts our perceptions, impacts what we see, what we do, what we think. The question is, what is the background music in our lives? What's the song that is perpetually on play. So this psalm, particularly the chorus of this song, was sung when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. And the story behind that is that after Saul, the first king of Israel, died in battle, David, who had already been anointed king, was formally made king at Hebron. And then he began to move his fighting men and his you know, center of operations back to Jerusalem because he had not been in Jerusalem for some time. And so he made a tent for the ark to dwell because the ark hadn't been in Jerusalem for a long time. In fact, ever since the Philistines, when Saul lost a battle, the Philistines had grabbed the ark. The ark produced all kinds of tumors in him and all kinds of things like, we don't want this. And they got rid of it and it had stayed at a city outside of Jerusalem for many, many years. And David is now ready to bring it back into the city of Jerusalem. And so he does that, begins a process, there's much to that story of him bringing that in, and you can read it in 1 Chronicles 14-16. through 16. There's another place of worship that isn't localized around Jerusalem, it's in Gideon, and Gideon was where they still have built up the original tabernacle that Moses had built, and that was a place of worship, a place of sacrifice. So these two places of worship. And so as David brings the ark in, he makes some decisions. The Levites at that point had not been really employed. They're the priests and the guys are supposed to be leading worship and taking care of the ark and all those things. And so David kind of sets everything back correctly. And he has Levites come in and he appoints them to do the jobs they're supposed to do. And then he makes some special appointments. He appoints some special Levites, if you will, to, to minister in Jerusalem and Gibeon. And he orders them to do one thing. He says, I want you to give thanks every morning and every evening, perpetually, singing and praising. And out of 1 Chronicles, here's a record of that a little bit. Chapter 16, verse 39, he says, And he left Zadok the priest and his brothers, the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon, left them there to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering, regularly morning and evening, to do all that is written in the law of God that He commanded Israel. And with them were Heman and Jeduthun and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Heman and Jeduthun had trumpets and cymbals for music and instruments for sacred song. And this, these guys, these, this choir that David appointed 
to give background music as the worship was, as people were going to make sacrifices, to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. This happened again when Solomon actually established the, the real temple. It happened again when a king named Jehoshaphat was going into battle, and as a precursor to battle, he actually established ministers, singers, to sing thanks to God for his steadfast love endures forever as they went into battle. A choir. A choir to fill the background music. A choir to shape your emotion. A choir and a song to be sung to align you with what is true and what is good help you trust the Lord as you move forward. His steadfast love endures forever. And this is why I titled the sermon Restoring the Chorus. See, we, we naturally are going to sing the song of the world if we do not sing the song of God. There is a background song perpetually being played in our world that if we do not sing and proclaim and compete with, it will fill our minds, it will fill our ears, and will fill our hearts, and it will direct us away from God. This, Psalm 136, is a great chorus, but the world has its own choir and it has its own song. And it's a song that refuses to acknowledge God and refuses to thank Him for what He has done. The world's song is a song that actually worships creation. It's a song that casts doubt on the love of God. It's a song that celebrates the work of men. It's a song with a chorus that says the steadfast love of the Lord does not endure forever. It's a song that says I'm not thankful, but I'm actually resentful. It's a song that declares God is not good. I do not believe that He has given me or has given me His best. It's a song that says, I do not believe God can save. I do not think He can deliver me from this. I do not think He can forgive me from this. It's a song that declares God doesn't provide. God's not leading me. I don't know where He is, but I'm lost. And with every bad thing that comes into our life, with every mistake we make, with every battle we lose, we hear the chorus, God does not bless. God does not care. God does not forgive. God does not fight. God does not know. God does not love me forever. That's the song that we hear. And the truth is, we are, yes, called to sing Psalm 136, but it's easy to sing a song of thanksgiving when things are going the way I want. When I can measure the blessings and I can point out the awesome things. Oh yeah, thank you for my kids. They're rad. Thank you for my home. It's awesome. Thank you for my job. My marriage is rad. I'm healthy. It's easy. But what about when things are awful? What about when it doesn't feel naturally like blessing? Or you don't feel like you're freed from anything? It's hard to thank God when you don't feel like He has blessed, saved, or led you out of trouble. We need perspective. In her book, The Hiding Place, 
which you may have heard of. A woman, Holocaust survivor named Corrie Ten Boom, tells a story about Thanksgiving. You may know her and her story well. If not, this will be helpful to you. Corey had a sister named Betsy, and they lived in Holland at the time were very young. They were imprisoned by Nazis for hiding Jews behind the wall of their home. Aaron Ortiz and I got to visit that home uh, years ago when we went on a trip to Holland, and it's this teeny little hole that many Jews were hidden in. But they were put in prison for uh, their treachery. And probably don't need to say that the prison conditions were fairly unbearable. In her book, she describes that the first barracks the new people were put in were in the quarantine area, and the quarantine area was right next to the punishment barracks. The punishment barracks where they brought people to punish, to beat, to abuse. So all day long and into the night, they would go to sleep, or they would simply hear the rhythmic beatings and screams of cruelty all the time. In her own words, she says, hearing that, it grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Now, in the midst of the suffering that she was experiencing with her sister, the women prisoners that they were with found comfort with Corey and Betsy as they had a Bible. And they were able to have some studies that they held in the barracks. Eventually, they were moved, Corey and her sister were moved to what they call Barracks 28. And Corey was horrified by the fact that their reeking straw bed platforms were swarmed with fleas and bedbugs. Infested. And they thought, how could it get worse? How can we possibly endure this? It was Betsy who discovered encouragement in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, where Paul, writing from his own prison, says, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanksgiving to God in all circumstances. So Betsy said, all right, let's do that. And in Barracks 28, she began to thank God for the Bible that they had. All right, that's something to thank. Let's thank God that we have each other. Let's thank you, God, for making these barracks so crowded and uncomfortable, and yet that allows a lot of us to hear the Word of God. And then Betsy said, thank you, God, for the fleas. At that point, Corey looked at her. What? Why would you ever thank God for the fleas? What a horrible thing. How can that ever? They're not a blessing. Why would you ever think? That's horrible. That's, that's dumb. But Betsy was convinced we need to thank God for all things in all circumstances. In truth, the women were able to have Bible studies in the barracks with a great deal of freedom. 
For some reason, they were never bothered like the other barracks by the supervisors coming in and beating them or taking them out. And it was years later that Corey found out why when one of the guards who had beaten her and been in charge uh, came to a speaking engagement she was at, and basically it was an exchange of forgiveness, and it was a beautiful thing. But she ended up learning and finally discovering that it was the fleas that kept the supervisors out. The guards didn't want to go in that infested mess, so they stayed away. Thanking God for the fleas. The question is, what's, what's your background song? What is the filter by which we perceive all things? And if we look at the cross, we see the cross of Christ reveals that, that those things that we naturally look at and go, how, why would I ever thank you for that? How horrible is that? How, how irritating is that? How devastating is that? Why would I ever thank for that? We see that it's in those very things like the cross that God is protecting us and proclaiming His love most boldly. We need a new background song. And we need to put it on repeat. In Christ, God has put a new song into our mouths. As Psalm 43 says, He put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We need a new song and a a new chorus which doesn't simply thank God for what has happened, but thanks Him and says, I trust you for what's going to happen. We need a new song proclamation of the cross of Jesus Christ that perpetually says in Christ His steadfast love endures forever. So, when you wonder whether God is in control of the chaos, you stop. You look at the cross and you thank God and you say, In Christ, His steadfast love endures forever. And when you are unsure whether God is really giving you His best, because this doesn't feel like a blessing, is this really your best, God? You look at the cross and you thank Him and you say, in Christ, His steadfast love endures forever. And when you doubt whether He could possibly forgive you for what you have done, You look at the cross and you say, in Christ, His steadfast love endures forever. And when you are fearful that He is going to provide you what you know you need, do you know what's going on, Lord? Are you really going to lead me here and provide what I need? You stop, you look at the cross, and you say, in Christ, His steadfast love endures forever. And when you're uncertain about where to turn, wondering how it's going to end up, Asking, Lord, lead me. Are you there? I feel lost. You look at the cross and you declare in Christ His steadfast love endures forever. I'll close with a verse out of Romans which is just awesome. Romans chapter 8. 
and it is probably the summary of the song of Psalm 136. If you believe this, you will sing Psalm 136. For I am sure, Paul writes, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor lack of money, nor lack of understanding, nor bad health, nor irritating job situations, nor uncertainty in whatever things, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And as we come to the table this morning, for those who believe that, for those who are in Christ, for those who know just how unlovable they are, but know the deep and abiding and steadfast love of God, we come here declaring that. We come here seeing His body broken and His blood shed for us, looking at the cross and saying, in Christ, His steadfast love endures forever. I've screwed up this week. I will screw up next week. I don't know everything I need to know. I feel deficient, but we come to the table every Sunday to declare in Christ, I know this, His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray.